out from Jerusalem. They were Christian missionaries, uh, but they were Jewish in ethnicity, and they were, in a sense, distorting the gospel that Paul had taught to the churches in Galatia. See, they sought to make living under the Old Testament religious law a requirement for being a good Christian. Uh, it, It had gained influence among the churches in Galatia, so much so that Paul felt he needed to write to them and work on hopefully getting them to change their perspective and reorient their uh, course that they had uh, begun to pursue. We're going to pick up the story at the very beginning of the letter. If you want to follow along in your uh, original flat screen, we're going to be in the book of Galatians, which is in the very back of the New Testament. We'll also have the words on the large flat screen up front here as well. And I'm just going to read through uh, verses 1 through 10. We're going to pause a little bit along the way to get uh, the background and the context of what Paul is writing here. And then we're going to spend a little bit of time understanding how uh, this introduction to the letter sets up uh, the issues that Paul wants to raise and then how we can begin to set our minds and hearts uh, on these words for how we might apply it for ourselves as well. So Paul begins by saying, Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by man, but by Jesus Christ, And God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers and sisters with me, to the churches in Galatia. Now, now, first of all, Paul is identifying himself as an apostle. And an apostle simply means somebody who is an agent of somebody else, a a representative or an ambassador who is sent. And and we know that biblically, the apostles were those who had a firsthand relationship with Jesus, who received their knowledge and their teaching directly from him, and then were authorized by Christ to go out and teach others. And Paul was the, the apostle who was the last in line, right? Because he wasn't one of the original 12. He came along later after having this conversion experience with the risen Christ who called him to stop persecuting the church and he became one of the primary evangelists for the church in the world. Uh, we, we also see that... Uh, What he's concerned with here is he's not writing to one church, but this group of Christians who were in this whole region. And and in those days, they would often write a letter to to a region, and they would pass that letter around, and they would share it. So there's a a large group of people who are being influenced by these false teachers, and Paul is concerned about getting ahead of the curve and correcting their their wrong thinking. So he, he continues on by saying, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Now, scholars suggest that this, uh, what is a familiar New Testament greeting, grace and peace, is actually a mix of of a Greek and a Hebrew greeting. Grace, or charis in in, in Greek, and shalom, peace, was the Hebrew greeting. And in the early church, they began to combine this idea of grace and peace coming from God through what Jesus had accomplished on the cross. So Paul is starting out putting their minds on the focus of what he wants to talk about, that grace and peace in our lives as believers comes from God the Father and his son Jesus Christ, who gave his life to save us from our sins and to rescue us from this present evil age. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more as we get into it deeply. Uh, But while the Galatians may have thought they were forgiven... By, by what Christ had accomplished on the cross, apparently they did not realize that this forgiveness was sufficient to save them from this present evil age as Paul talks about it. Scholars suggest that if you think about uh, Judaism, they often uh, distinguish this age from the age to come. And, and the age to come was the age when God's kingdom would come in and his justice and his peace would be established on the earth. And so for Paul, because of his 
conversion to Christ, this idea of uh, living into this new age and the justice and peace of God having already arrived, this idea of living under the Old Testament law was a part of living under the judgment of that law, but we are set free in Christ because we are now living in the Spirit. It's Paul's belief in the substance of the argument that we're going to be looking at over this summer that to try and live under the law was to continue to live within a present evil age because it meant living under judgment. While to live in Christ is to enter into that new age that is to come, the justice and peace of God that is even now reigning on earth. What has God's forgiveness rescued us from if not the judgment of God's law? He goes on in verse 6 to say, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. And we have already said, as we have already said, and so now say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Pretty strong language, right? Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. We're going to pause there for today and begin to try and unpack this intense, strong language that Paul is using to these churches that he was a part of starting just a few months ago. Paul is amazed at the transformation that has apparently taken place among these fledgling churches that happened so quickly. And in doing so, Paul says that they are actually not just deserting a belief system or a theology, but by, by changing the way that they understand the gospel, they're actually turning their back on the very God who had called them to live into this freedom that he had offered them. They were, in effect, turning their backs on God himself. Now, while might this at first appear to be a different gospel or a different teaching, Paul says, in fact, it's, it's no gospel at all. How could this be good news to return to a law that has only judgment and condemnation when, when Christ gave his very life to set us free from that kind of thinking? See, this is in no way good news. And scholars suggest that the intensity of Paul's words here, because he jumps into it pretty quickly, right? indicates not only the severity and the seriousness of the issue in his mind, but also the passion and the closeness that he had for the people in the Galatian churches. These were, these were his baby churches. He had helped start them. He was passionate about them, and he's intense because he loves them so deeply, and he doesn't want them to get off track. As a perversion of the true gospel, Paul invokes a curse on anyone, including himself, who would teach something different than what God had revealed in Jesus. See, the gospel that came from Jesus and has been presented through his appointed agents, the apostles, uh, is the message of Christ crucified and as alone sufficient for our salvation. And to reject this message, Paul is essentially saying, is not only to reject God, but to reject the gift that God has given us in Christ. To reject Christ is essentially to be cursed. Or the word that's actually used here is anathema. And, and the, the word anathema comes from an Old Testament understanding of, of something that is actually rejected by God. And, and, and I think what we understand here is that it's not God who's rejecting these Christians who turn their back on God, right? It's actually the, they who are turning their back on God themselves. Because uh, to refuse God's grace is, well, 
to refuse God's grace, right? And so if we turn our hearts away from the gift of grace in Jesus Christ alone and add anything, Christ plus anything, in order to be acceptable to God, creates a different gospel, creates a different message, which is really no gospel at all, because then the very saving work that Christ did is not sufficient to bring us to salvation. Paul concludes that section by asking, am I pleasing God or am I pleasing people? Am I pleasing those around me or am I seeking to please the God who called me as an apostle and sent me? And I'd like to suggest that in our efforts as Christians too, we need to always be asking whether our motivations are to please God or to please the people around us. Sometimes in our service to Christ and to his gospel message, we need to check ourselves to see if we are being truly motivated by the gospel and by the Holy Spirit in us or by some other group of people around us. Sometimes in our desire to be true to the gospel, we can unwittingly become influenced by social pressures and cultural influences that allow us to begin to be motivated by other things than the true gospel. And we can ultimately begin to avoid associating with people who don't agree with us, who are appear different than us based on this idea that somehow we have the right version and their version is wrong. Now, scholars will suggest that the presenting issue that Paul is dealing with could simply be termed legalism. Paul is concerned with a legalism that is creeping into the Galatian churches. But they also suggest that we have to be careful in using that term because in our modern day, we have very clear ideas of what we think of when we use the term legalism. Uh, it's not necessarily the same way that we might think of it today, as in, you know, don't dance, don't drink, don't smoke, don't play cards, uh, don't watch rated R movies. Those are kind of modern legalisms that we're familiar with from a more conservative and fundamentalist approach to Christianity. But if you look at the legalism that was going on in, in, the, in Paul's day, at issue is really more a sense of religious identity and religious practice. What are the religious rules and expectations that that you need to live into in order to be truly acceptable before God. And what became the heart of the issue became a racial and an ethnic division between Jewish Christians and non-Jewish Christians. And how do we understand what Christ has accomplished? How does that play itself out in our lives together? You see, the works of the law that these Jewish Christians were concerned with were particular Jewish customs and rituals and practices that set the people of Israel apart from the rest of the people of the world as God's chosen people. The expectation was that in order to be a true Christian or to experience the fullness of the gospel, was to, you also needed to add on these rituals and Jewish customs that the Israelite people had lived into for many centuries. In practice, this focused primarily on food purity laws and, and circumcision and all the ways that mark these people as distinct and separate from everyone else in the world. But what they began to find is that these religious practices, which were originally set up for the people of Israel, began to create boundaries between ethnically Jewish Christians and ethnically non-Jewish Christians, or what the Bible calls Gentiles, and those who were newly converted to Christianity. The way these Jewish Christians then began to believe people were supposed to live out their faith in Christ was actually creating separations between those in churches who claimed faith in Jesus Christ. What Paul is going to argue through this letter is not that, uh, that this is not what was intended or meant by Jesus as the outcome of his death, death and resurrection as the Messiah. In fact, just the opposite is true. 
because the Holy Spirit has now been poured out on all people, those former things that created distinctions between Jews and Gentiles are no longer necessary. And seeking to please God by keeping to the system of the Old Testament religious laws was actually turning away from what Christ had accomplished on the cross and from the life lived in the power and presence of God's Holy Spirit. And Paul says this was essentially turning to what he called the flesh. Often we think of flesh in terms of those worldly secular pursuits, but for Paul, more often, it was living the religious life within our own human power and neglecting the power of the Spirit to empower us to live out this calling that he had given us. For Paul, living in the flesh meant seeking to live our Christian lives by our own performance and rule-keeping rather than by the guidance and the power of his Spirit in our lives. It was essentially seeking to justify oneself based on the measure of performance of how good of a Christian you could be. Thus, it became more of an unspiritual life or life in the flesh because it made human merit the primary emphasis rather than the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Paul's argument is essentially that whatever practices detract from the sufficiency of Christ alone and the enabling power of his spirit need to be opposed and exposed. In effect, whatever message that is not Christ and the Spirit alone is a perversion of the good news of Christ and and becomes no longer good news to us because it becomes Christ plus something else in order to be accepted by God. What we'll also see is that Paul is for any practice that encourages the freedom of the Spirit among those Christians who are living life together. For Paul, it's a lifestyle ethic that is characterized by love that comes from our freedom in Christ. The essence of Christian life for Paul is living in Christ and by the Spirit. When a person lives by the Spirit, living under the total guidance of God's presence and power in their lives, that person naturally does what God wants, and so they will always be living within God's will. The Judaizers were wrong because they sacrificed Christ and the Spirit on the altar of their own religious rule-keeping. Now, how, how do we take this and apply this today? I mean, religious... Jewish religious rule practices, I mean, those were 2,000 years ago. Those are so far beyond our experience. I mean, this doesn't really apply to us today, does it? Uh, You know, we know that some rules and expectations for our lives are good, right? And we talk a lot about maintaining spiritual disciplines and and, and prayer practices and consistent study of the Bible and and not giving up worshiping together in the community of, of, of God's people. I mean, there's all kinds of practices that we advocate that we say are good for Christian education and development. So, so how do we apply that in our context? And, and I think what scholars suggest is that we need to be on guard against when any of these rules or expectations become uh, an, an additional necessary thing for us to view each other as acceptable in God's eyes. What we find is not just conservative or fundamentalist Christians who struggle with legalism, Right? And as we've seen uh, the era of tolerance grow, it's amazing how our people who advocate for tolerance in all things become truly intolerant of those people who don't agree with their tolerance, right? Isn't that just another form of legalism? You see, it's not a conservative issue or a liberal issue. It's not a a progressive versus those stuck-in-the-mud Christians. It's a human issue that that we all tend to begin to think that somehow we have the ability to manage and control our faith in a way that if we add these things, it gives us a sense of being in the right, and then we can begin to judge ourselves against other people who don't agree with us. 
See, almost every stream of Christian faith is tempted to idealize their brand or version of Christianity as the right way. And in doing so, they end up adding something additional to the gospel message that that causes us to expect that we have to do or believe or act or say something more than Christ alone is sufficient for my salvation and the power of his spirit in my life is sufficient to allow me to live into this new life that God has given me. When any group of Christians begin to create boundaries around what is right or correct practice, we begin to separate ourselves from other believers who have the same spirit in them, and we begin to uh, reflect this same kind of legalistic thinking that crept its way into the Galatian churches. But we would never struggle with that, would we? No, not us. But if you think through the modern church experience, I mean, we could probably multiply this over and over again. And and the challenge with this is most of the things that become the problem start off as good things, right? They're they're often not bad things. In fact, many of those Jewish religious laws and rituals, Jesus even said, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill it, right? These aren't bad things. They're, They're good things that if they become more important than the sufficiency of Christ itself, it becomes more of an idolization of those things and gets us off track. Maybe we could talk about what styles and forms of prayer are acceptable and which are not. Uh, Whether you speak in tongues or not. Whether you read your Bible every day or not. Whether you can parse Greek verbs and understand things like exegesis and hermeneutics and the hypostatic union or not. (laughs) Whether you tithe 10% of your income or not. Whether you worship with a pipe organ or an electric guitar or only acoustic music or you can't worship in a building because you only can worship in nature. All of these things are not required for salvation and are not expectations that God has placed on us through the gift of his son, Jesus Christ. These are all human traditions that we add on to say it's Christ plus this that makes you truly acceptable within our religious community. We can expand this out even to our cultural examples as well, right? Because we know that the church lives in a culture and the culture influences the church just as much as the church influences the culture. Whether you are thin and fit or whether you're overweight and out of shape, whether you're young or old, whether you're wealthy or poor, all of these things can lead to an overemphasis on performance and a lifestyle that isn't based on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And our sense of acceptability within the group of people that we're worshiping with begins to be based largely on whether we're performing up to the expectations of the people around us, rather than living into the freedom that God has given us in his son, Jesus Christ. See, the challenge here really, and this is Paul's deepest concern, and I want us to hear this. The challenge is, because we are the church, The unspoken message that others will receive is that these things are also needed in order for them to be acceptable to God. See, we are God's representative on earth. We are that apostolic community that is called to bring the good news, this gospel, to a world that is in desperate need of the mercy and the grace and the love of Jesus Christ. But if we're saying Christ plus this or Christ plus this, then what we're doing is we're adding extra weight and burden onto those people and they're missing the true gospel message because what they will hear is they will believe because we are God's representative that God expects that of them as well. 
So we have to be clear. However important performance is in our relationship with God, and sometimes performance is important for us to grow and to develop and to be challenged. But whatever expected actions and behaviors we place on one another and even in ourselves is not the means of gaining God's acceptance in Jesus Christ. Christ alone is all that we ever will need. Amen? Most of us, intellectually, right, if we think about it, would likely say that Christ and the Spirit alone are sufficient for us. However, if we're truly honest with ourselves, and I include myself in this category, as we live out our faith, it's very easy to say that we believe it, but then hold others and ourselves to a different standard, right? The enemy would love nothing more than to have us begin to question and doubt God's love and acceptance for us based on who we are and rather than what we do for God. Uh, we would, the enemy would love nothing more than to have us question God's love for us because of something about our personal lives or something about our spiritual lives that, that we're afraid or that we begin to believe isn't good enough. But here's the question, right? Good enough for who? Good enough for God? Good enough for other church people? Good enough for my parents? Good enough for my spouse? Or maybe more often, it's, is it good enough for myself? You see, the point that Paul is making, and we will be, and, and we'll be hitting home throughout this letter to the churches in Galatia, is that the starting point for the Christian life always, always, always has to be God's grace that comes only as a free gift from Jesus Christ because of his sacrifice on the cross. You are already good enough for God. That's the good news. That's why Jesus came, to demonstrate that God loves you just the way you are. There is nothing you have done that will make God love you less, and there is nothing you can do that will make God love you more. Let me say that again. There is nothing you can do that will make God love you less, and there is nothing you can do that will make God love you more. The starting point for the Christian life is always, always God's grace. And his, as a gift from his son, Jesus Christ. That's the gospel that the Judaizers were missing. By adding anything else necessary to our message is to turn it into another gospel, another message, or really no gospel at all. We, we suck the good news out of the gospel by adding anything to this message of Christ alone is good enough for me because we are determined to be good enough for God. Because we are set free from all of this stuff in Christ and enabled to live by the power of His Spirit in us, we no longer have to follow prescribed sets of religious laws in order to be proved acceptable to those around us or to God Himself. When we accept Christ and receive the power of His Spirit in our lives, we end up living out and fulfilling the very purpose for why God gave the law to begin with, which is to show us how much we need God in order to live. Right? That was the whole purpose of the law, was to show us how far short we fall in our own lives, so we have to turn to a complete dependence on God for life itself. See, the Christian's commitment to Christ is based on this free gift of grace and faith in Jesus. And Paul will say at the end of Galatians, it also results in walking in the Spirit. 
See, once we figured out that this free gift is, is, is to free us from performance mentality and our religiosity, but it also frees us to walk in relationship with the Spirit, to allow the Spirit to come in, to be our guide, to be our counselor, to be our friend and advocate. And the whole goal is that we live day to day, moment by moment, in the presence of God and in the power of His Spirit, not afraid that we're going to mess up or make a mistake, but to live into the freedom of love and grace and mercy in our lives as well. Rather than becoming religious religious rule keepers, we begin to demonstrate that this presence and power of God in our lives begins to overflow in ways that demonstrate the very character and heart of God in our lives and in our communities. Paul will say it this way, the fruit of the Spirit will manifest itself in our lives and in our communities in a way that will take us beyond religious laws and, and allow us to become truly godly people. Paul's entire letter will focus on this freedom and the love that come only from the gift of God in his son Jesus. In our efforts to share this gospel with each other and with the world around us, our lives too should be characterized by the freedom and the love and the grace for one another that is demonstrated by God's love for us. So my invitation to you and for me as well is to to join us on this journey of freedom as we walk through the letter of Galatians this summer. I know many of us are going to be traveling, uh, but we have the sermons posted online so you can listen to it online and follow along and allow God to invite us to let go of those things that that we maybe have added on to to Christ, that Christ plus in our life, and to fully accept that, that God loves you just the way that you are. And if we start at that point of grace and freedom we can discover a whole new process of living into the life that God has called us to live, both as individuals and as a community. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Happy Independence Day. Let's pray. God, we do thank you for the freedom that you've given us. And we ask, God, for your forgiveness for any ways that we have wittingly or unwittingly added on to the expectations of our Christian faith, that that it's Christ plus something else that we need in order to be acceptable to you or acceptable to one another. God, would you give us the courage to, to live into the freedom that you've offered us in Christ and to challenge one another to be people of deep grace and mercy, but also to live in the power of the Spirit so that the transformation of your life in us transforms us to be truly godly people, not because we have to, but because we get to, and you have invited us to live our lives in you. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.